Welcome to Outrage Overload, a science podcast about outrage and lowering the temperature. This is our special one-year anniversary episode. Buckle up, folks. That was year one of Outrage Overload, a wild ride through the political circus, the echo chamber funhouse, and the outrage-fueled tilt-a-whirl of American democracy. Remember that feeling back in episode one when Professor Ditto dropped that truth bomb on us? So I think we're in a very tenuous situation, but likely, and it's not one of these things that's going to resolve itself. It's just going to be, we're, we're in it. This is the fight. This is this is the ugly sort of toxic marriage we're in and we can't really get divorced. And so, you know, buckle up. And guess what? We're still strapped in one year later. I can't believe it's already been a year of diving deep into the outrage machine, dissecting its gears and searching for ways to escape its grip. Over 40 episodes published with dozens of world-renowned guests. Unbelievable. But we haven't done this alone. This journey has been a community effort. Your questions, your comments, your shared stories have fueled our passion, and together we become this Outrage Overload family. Thank you for being part of it. And to the newbies in the back, welcome to the party. We're a little loud, a little messy, but we're passionate about dissecting the outrage machine and searching for a way out of this political nosedive. So grab a seat and join the conversation. As we celebrate this milestone, it's fitting to revisit the foundation upon which this show was built. Peter Ditto's research on political sectarianism and morality laid the groundwork for many of our discussions. Well, guess what? Peter Ditto is back. He's rejoining us for a victory lap, a chance to reflect on how far we've come, and let's be honest, how much farther we have to go. Before we jump into the interview, I need to talk about something real quick. I often rave about this show being ad-free. Well, that's not some magic trick, folks. It's all thanks to you. Yep, you heard that right. Every episode, every conversation, every ounce of outrage-busting wisdom is fueled by listeners like you. Now, I know what you're thinking, but David, how can you compete with those fancy podcasts with million-dollar sponsorship? Well, let me tell you, there's something way more important than a car commercial in the middle of a deep dive, and that's your ears. Your presence, your engagement, your thoughtful questions, they're what make this show tick. You're not just listeners, you're fellow truth seekers, outrage fighters, and democracy defenders. So when you tune in, when you share an episode, when you leave a thoughtful comment, that, my friends, is the best way to support the show. You're not just a passive audience, you're an active participant in this community. You're saying, I believe in these conversations, I believe in challenging the status quo, I believe in building a better tomorrow, one outrage-free episode at a time. And let me tell you, your engagement, your presence, it means the world. It keeps the fire of curiosity burning, the mics hot with possibility, and the coffee flowing. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for lending your ears, your minds, and your hearts to this experiment. And you're not just listening, you're actively shaping the conversation. And that, my friends, is something to shout about. 
Now, if you're feeling extra generous and want to help keep the lights on and the coffee pot simmering, then by all means, consider tossing your hat in the virtual tip jar. Every contribution, big or small, shows you're not just listening, you're actively participating. But remember, the most important support is always your presence, your engagement, your voice. So keep listening, keep sharing, keep challenging, and together we'll turn down the volume on outrage and crank up the dial on understanding. So with that, a year later, here we are, Professor Ditto back in the hot seat. Are we still strapped in for the bumpy ride? Or have we somehow managed to escape the toxic marriage and build something, dare I say, healthy? We're about to see if things have gotten better, worse, or just weirder with Dr. Peter H. Ditto. Well, thank you, Professor Ditto. I mean, when you said you were uh, able to come on to do this anniversary special, I thought that was, I mean, I was so thrilled. Well, it's great. to. I, I, I'm happy to come back again and uh, I'm happy to see what's been going on since. Yeah, well, that's cool. So we spoke a little bit and we talked about that. You mentioned that you were sort of OK if if we uh, open just, you know, you were open to some uh, talking about some various different things. So I hope it's OK that I, I take some liberty with that. <laughs> sure. If I don't if I don't have an opinion or <laughs> have, actually don't have an informed opinion, I'll, I'll tell I'll let you know. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I get it. And also. um you know, if you uh, feel free to throw anything at us that you think would be of particular interest to, you know, this segment and this question and the audience here, too. So that that's cool, too. Cool. Uh, but, you know, so that conversation that we had a year ago, you know, that still kind of holds as a foundation for the podcast. I mean, we talked about, you know, the political sectarianism, you know, as kind of a scientific description of this kind of boiling state that we, we sort of observe in, in real life. And, um, and that still kind of is a fun, um, I mean, a fundamental message of the show is kind of this you know, this we're dialed up to 10 or 11 and, you know, we're set to boil and that's not really conducive to democracy. So I, I talked to folks about sort of why things are like that. And then maybe, you know, some ways that we can sort of lower the temperature as kind of a necessary first step kind of thing. And, um, you know, and I stumbled across this, some thoughts by uh, Dr. Shannon McGregor, um, some publications that she did. She's a professor at uh, UNC uh, in the School of Journalism. And she did this talk on polarization is not the problem, it obscures the problem. And the basic theme she has is that, you know, the real problem is radicalization on the right. And if we're talking about polarization, we're sort of masking that real problem and we're sort of getting some feel-good vibes, but we're not helping. And um, and when I first saw that, I was sort of like, okay, well, is this an existential question for my entire show? Um, and, you know, am I part of the problem by talking about polarization and civil dialogue and, and that kind of thing? And, you know, from my perspective, I sort of looked at that and I sort of came back with at the end of the day, I sort of think radicalization on the right is sort of a symptom of, of this boiling state we're in and all the hostility that's out there. Not It's one problem, but it maybe not be the problem. And, and if I were to spend all my time talking about that, I would sort of break this whole mission that we're on with the Connors Institute as well of sort of providing this kind of quality, nonpartisan information as much as possible. And it also kind of wouldn't be in line with this with lowering the temperature. I'm curious to get your your thoughts on that topic, if that's if that's something you're OK to talk about. Yeah, it's it's a framing of the polarization issue that I've that you hear a lot 
right, that we, you, you can sort of define it as a problem and the problem that has to be dealt with, or you can look at it and say it's almost a sign of progress because you're, you're there's a sense in which we're comparing today to some halcyon days past where everybody was happy and got along and effective and enlightened. And there's a different way to view that, right? I mean, the reason we used to get along so well is because we were the people in power, at least were all alike. They were all white men uh, you know, that sort of some you know, faded a little right, some faded a little left, but they had a lot to agree upon. They, they you know, there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, explicit or implicit sort of, racism classism all kinds of stuff in there and now that now that the political system is more open now that you know, we have people of color and women and and you know lots of uh, you know different uh uh you know kinds of diversity in there that you're going to fight now now there's a fight because you got a difference of opinion and it's a good healthy democratic uh fight right and and i think there's not i, I don't think that's a good characterization of the problem, right? I mean, I think first of all, I think that the idea that that people only that the party that that's only the right wing, it's only the conservatives, Republicans that have gone right, and liberals have basically stayed the same. That's I just don't think that's a, a accurate characterization of what's going on, right? I mean, the, the, clearly the left has gone left as well. I mean, on on things like you know uh, uh, sexual uh, you know issues of sexual orientation, sexuality, sexual identity. Uh, you know, economically, there's things we do now that we would just have never considered before. I mean, again, I'm not putting any kind of negative labels on any of those things, right? But there's clear that the two sides are are sort of uh, both expanding. Um, yeah, I would let me say right at the bit, you know, right here that I, I clearly think that the, the the right is is increasingly problematic, right? I mean, there's no question where the where the the blame sort of lies for uh, you know, the, the the most serious problems that are facing the democracy. You know, I think that this sort of anti-democratic streak that's taken over in the, in the right, which we can unpack here, uh, you know, uh, more, you know, later, obviously, is a, is a real problem. Uh, it's still the case that the two sides fight like crazy and, and they pull away. And I, and I think that the, to get maybe psychological for a little while, uh, or I don't know what this is, I think it's anthropological, it, it's it's wrong to think of the parties as as moving in independently, right? They're in a dance. They're in groups that interact and 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 are in conflict, right? Are are moving and one responds to the movements of the other, right? And they do that in a particular way, right? So and one side goes more extreme, the other side goes more extreme, and it it's a, a term that um, anthropologists uses schismogenesis which is a great word. I love to say it because it's just such a cool <laughs> word, schismogenesis. But essentially what it means is that if, is that groups very often define themselves against each other. So if I decide that I hate you and your group and you guys like chocolate ice cream, right? And I think you're you're all moral reprobates and I really don't like it. Well, I'm going to decide, well, there must be something wrong with chocolate ice cream and I really prefer vanilla. And vanilla is really the best kind of ice cream, clearly the moral kind of ice cream to have. Right. And so and and my choices 
you know, as much as if I conform to what you wanted, my choice is, is constrained by what you, by by what the other side does, right? So we're just picking against each other, and it's not an accident that we sort of end up as this almost like mirror images of each other, where the things one side hates, the other side likes, right? And um, and you could you could see them sort of carving their opinions kind of against each other, right? And so it's, it's so even so, just as a sort of mechanistic, you know, sort of psychological issue, the two sides. On both sides are involved. They're both operating. If you want to put moral blame on one side or the other, right? I mean, I think sort of more of the, the moral blame goes on the right because of the, this anti-democratic streak uh, and, and this sort of systematic divorcement from reality in, in some ways. Uh, that's That clearly you know, sort of falls on one side. But I still think, again, polarization still outrages there's no question there's outrage. There's no question there's polarization. I think your your topic is safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's no question that there's this affective type, you know, that we really dislike each other, right? Regardless right. of issue polarization, we there, we really, like you say, we're we're determined to to determine we're determined to find what the other person thinks and think the opposite thing, kind of thing, right? You know, and we see this with this presidential election heating up. You know, there was a, a Brookings Institute uh, study that recently came out and. Um, you know, and one of the questions they had was, if the other party wins, if the other candidate wins, the other presidential candidate wins, then that will be the end of democracy. And both sides rated quite highly on that. I think Democrats were about 75 percent, but Republicans were right there at, at 60 something and even independents were up there. So it's like we all think that like and if we're going into these things with those stakes, it's no wonder we don't see more violence. Right. Yeah, I mean. That's the way we've done it for a million years. That's what people do, right? I mean, that's that. As I always say, you know, democracy, and particularly, you know, multicultural democracy, is an evolutionary uphill putt, right? I mean, it is. We're not built that way. We are built to split up into little groups. You know, all of our all of our intuitions, our instincts, you know, split up into groups of people who basically look like us and probably are related to us because that's why they look like us. Right. And then and kind of compete against these other groups. It's just we're not built to, to stare at, you know, to, to listen to people who don't look like us and don't think like don't share our morals and find some middle ground with them. People, it is it's it's a real challenge for for people. Uh, and I think it's good to understand that, you know, sort of how difficult the the, the task, uh, you know, it really is, a you know, the American experiment. It's just so let's see, can we really kind of override all these natural groupy tendencies and and find a way to get along with each other, right? Even as hard as it is and as mad as we get at each other, you know, and when you just think somebody's really, really wrong about abortion or, you know, you know gender stuff and whatever, people get really worked up about about these things, you know, uh, and but you've got to somehow honor their, their willingness to talk, be civil, uh, all those things. It, it, it is a... It, you know, that's what you know keeps me up at night. I think is how <laughs> how tenuous this whole thing really is. And a couple hundred years isn't really all that long in the big scheme of things. You know, we're a pretty new civilization, and so uh, yeah. And well, like you say, these instincts are so powerful. Instincts, for lack of a better scientific word, are just like so powerful. Con- like to overcome it, you have to. It's training. It's it's this you're, you're actively doing that like it's so easy just to snap back to those 
those irrational ways of doing it. And we all think we're the rational one, right? And everybody else is irrational. Yeah, it's because the things that come to you intuitively seem obvious, right? Just I mean, it's, it, that's that's the and it's so powerful. You feel like, my goodness, you know, how could how, you can't possibly see this differently than I see it unless you're a terrible person, right? Because it's so clear what a good person would think about in this situation, and that's the you know, and, right? And there's there's just lots of problems with that because almost nothing's like that. Justice isn't like that at all. Right. I mean, there's almost there's almost always multiple ways to construe sort of what the just thing is to do. But people pick the one they like, they believe in it and they go forward, uh, you know, and uh, you know, we see that again really clearly in the the Middle East right now where the two sides kind of and this is a really generic issue where where people differ on decide on what's just based on either what just happened now or what's happened in the past, right? And so, in a, so, you know, the Israeli sort of view, right, is that the only thing that matters really is what happened, the Hamas attack, that was immoral, that was wrong, and we're just to, to, to um, you know, respond. From the Palestinian standpoint, it's, well, no, no, you have to think about the past. It's not just, it's not just this, it's, you know that that this was you know some kind of uh, you know uh, retribution for for past wrongs, and so what's just is for is for you to you know not do that and to honor this thing. And so people and, and everybody thinks they've got justice on their side. It's exactly the same uh, structure as affirmative action. So affirmative action uh, essentially conservatives say, well, the only thing that matters is treating people fairly now, right? You have to treat people fairly right now because we don't discriminate on people based on race on any, any way you do it, right? That's un-American. The only way to do it is now. Liberals say, well, you've got to consider the past. You've got to think that you know, people have been, uh, uh, you know, systematically, uh, you know, rejected and hurt in all kinds of ways. Um, and, and so you have to consider that. And again, liberals think they're absolutely just. Conservatives think they're absolutely just. You know, and then and, and when people think that they have justice on their side, that's when they that's when they fight, right? That's what motivates all these things. And it's all just this kind of picking and choosing of, of and this is the kind of motivated moral reasoning that I'm interested in. I think is is so relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that you, there's all kind of examples of the left doing doing this too. So the right doesn't sort of <laughs> hold that uniquely, but but I think Trump is a really good example of that because you know. If you were to say, "Oh, here's what the world looked like," and we've we've kind of created all these issue positions, and we've got our and we've decided how they all fit this conservative, these various conservative kind of values or overall overarching philosophies, and then Trump comes along and pretty much just blows all that up, right? And but they still go along with it because it's what they want, and like you say, they kind of rewrite it all, and 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 now you've got this interesting. I I saw uh, some folks talking about the, this idea that people were complaining that you know the Trump style, you know, sort of MAGA Republicans have taken over the party and that, you know, the party has to pull it back and and sort of 
tell people how to think, let's say, for lack of a better way of saying it. And people are like, well, no, if this is what the base wants, the, then that would be wrong. I mean, if this is where the base wants to go, the party has to go, you know, the, the, the people, if you will, right? It would, be, it would be like this draconian thing to tell the people what they should think. So the idea that this is the new Republican Party, it's the moderate Republicans that are wrong and the MAGA Republicans that have got it right. And, you know, and I, I guess that's all just part of how this evolves. Yeah, again, you can see how that everything sort of plays off of each other. People trying to discriminate themselves, uh, you know, from one another, differentiate themselves from the people that they don't like, and um, you know, make themselves bonded the ones that they do. Yeah, I mean, Trump comes up. I clearly agree. I mean, everybody does this this process of sort of reconstruction. Is Trump is just such a beautiful example, right? I mean, he's <laughs> taken this to some kind of you know, weird art form and, you know, and the current Republican Party where, yeah, it's almost like what passes for conservatism is is an affectation. It's it's performance art, right? It's like acting in a certain way that you know, makes you intolerant of certain things. And, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, liberals clearly have their own affectations also in ways that you need to, be, you know, I'm in academia, you know, there's Certain ways that you have to behave and and things that you you know have to have to say and do to, to kind of fit in. Um, I mean, you can certainly see that. Uh, I, you know, again, I, I I always want to say I, I I you know my my work all talks about this sort of you know the symmetry of this process, right? That I think you know liberals clearly show the you know similar kinds of biases to conservatives, and historically, I just think that right now on the right things have. Just, and some of it is 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 Trump. Trump is partly a cause and partly a symptom of this, but it's sort of spun out of control in a way. So all the things that both sides do, they just sort of have, are doing more and more, um, you know, and, and more problematically. It's just sort of reached a point where it's hitting on the really fundamental aspects of the system, undermining trust in a really you know corrosive way. Yeah, uh, you know, but it's it's a it's a it's a group. In a team sport, they're they're in it together. Um, yeah, and I and I and I also like to sort of remind people: you sort of don't have to be dumb to fall into these sort of cognitive biases and these other habits, right? I mean, I get those uh, those men on the street interviews. That's a really smart people in there, right? And and at the end, and I do it. I mean, everybody does it, right? I mean, you don't have to be dumb. In fact, some people argue the smarter you are, the better you are <laughs> talking yourself into this stuff. Yeah, you know, there's 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 some new data on that. I think you know that so that. There's kind of two versions of that, which I think is a really important idea. This expert expertise paradox, I call it, you know, that the smart ones are the ones that are actually the most biased. And you do see that. You see clearly that sort of college education exacerbates things. So liberals and conservatives who aren't college educated differ in like believe in global warming, uh, where you know, liberals believe it more than, than conservatives do. But then you you go to college, you think either through education or indoctrination. Everybody should start end up believing in, in in global climate change, and what happens is it just spreads out more. So educated conservatives are more you know believe these things more than uneducated and, and educated Democrats in the same way. They're all more extreme. Um, yes, yeah, so I mean education doesn't help. I I and I the the, the two sort of interesting sort of psychological processes. There's one version about people being really smart, being able to talk themselves into it. 
is that they use, and that the data are starting to undermine that. That doesn't seem to be what's happening. And what I think it, which the, the next one or most likely hypothesis is just that, you know, people who are really smart don't think they're biased. So they, again, then these same things, everything comes to them. It seems so obvious to, to experts like us, right? That we don't check ourselves, you know? And, and if if you're biased and check yourself, you have a chance of kind of correcting it. But if you don't even think you're biased, you're never gonna check yourself. And so what, you know, what we get are these people who are hyper competent, uh, you know, confident. Uh, they don't, you know, they, they, they are smart enough to come up with, to support their positions and then not quite smart enough to realize how biased they are about it. And those are the, those are the pundits, those are the politicians, those are all the people in power, you know, fit that description. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen any research on this, but I, I've sort of looking at what appears to me as a layman is sort of a paradox because we talk about how, you know, I've seen a lot of people uh, a lot of scientists talking about how there's a lot of apathy out there, like people don't actually consume news. Like those of us that are sort of doing this kind of work, we're out there, we're kind of paying attention to the news. But they sort of say, well, most most people just like they don't consume any news at all. But yet again, if you look at some of this, the the appearances of it, you see first you see these people as sort of mo- moral motivated reasoning all over the place. They're really loud. They're they're kind of out there clearly paying attention to politics. And then you also see this voter turnout, right? So, I mean, you saw, we've seen high voter turnout in the last few elections. And I guess you can vote without being very knowledgeable, but I'm curious what you think, if there's any kind of paradox going on there, like, are we just not looking at it right? Um, You know, I, I think what's, what you've really sort of zeroed in on, or I guess what I want to zero in on too, is that, yeah, I think information is the problem this the information environment that we're in um and so we can you know i was originally interested in motivated reason how you people could kind of just sort of convince themselves of anything but they really can't people need grist for their motivated cognitive mill they need to have information and what i think that the the if you there's sort of two ways that we that we got ourselves into this or got ourselves this problem of people believing these different things, completely different things. One way you can think about it is people can believe different things because they have the same information and they biasly process it and make up all kinds of stories and end up believing what they want. The other thing is they just start with different information, right? And if people, you know, if you're only hearing one thing, then you're going to believe that thing. But if you're only hearing this other thing, you're going to hear the other thing. And that's the the real problem in our environment is, is this bifurcated media system where people are just hearing only one side of the story. You know, if you listen to Fox News, it's, you know, there, you know, there's lots of skepticism about global climate change and, you know, about uh, you know, support for Trump in, in, in various ways. And, you know, they talk about that a lot. You go to MSNBC and they just endlessly talk about the opposite, right? It's all, you know, anti-Trump and it's all this. And if you, if these are sort of, they're just, those are just the, you know, the kind of classic examples of those two, but you spread that out across the whole information world. I mean, we're just split. And it's, that's the, the, the problem isn't as much that, you know, the, the sort of motivated reason is it is the sort of information differences that go in and they're really, and that's really problematic. I mean, it's been problematic. You could put a lot of moral weight on Fox news and that whole 
world because they really kind of, again, in a sort of schismogenic way, they decided, oh, if the, if the left believes this, the right's going to believe the opposite. And again, that keeps going back and forth, but they just kind of split. And, and we're, so we have these different information worlds. Um, you see it now where you just, you, things like Biden, the economic record seems pretty good, but nobody thinks that the economy is going well. And, you know, people are really, you know, a lot of support for Trump. This, it was, you know, has all these indictments. It's just like people are listening to different kinds of information and coming to different kinds of conclusions. Yeah. And that's a real problem for democracy. I mean. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people on the right would say, you know, you can also blame the MSNBCs and some of the others who have reported maybe not all, not, maybe they didn't flat out lie and many on the right would say they did but there's situations where maybe they left some stuff out and, and are giving a skewed version of of the absolutely, picture too. absolutely and, and and they're obsessed with it too i mean they again they to the extent that that you don't hear about certain trump problems on one side you hear about them endlessly on the other and so it just ends up that people have very different impressions about what's happening and you know that leads to a lot of fighting yeah, and the headlines that sort of leave out a lot. If you, even sometimes, like even like the larger newspapers, that they're still doing journalism and all that. But when it comes to the headlines, it can get a little suspicious, right? If you read the article, it's usually pretty close to reality. But sometimes, that if all you read is that headline, you might walk yep. away with a way different p- p- picture of things, you know. And I think the other piece there is is the, and that gets back to something you said before: is this whole trust thing. I mean, this is a big challenge that we've got now. Is that you know the numbers for who trusts, uh, you know, the media or regular, you know, mainstream quote-unquote mainstream news you know those numbers have just plummeted and so then people are turning to all these alternatives and it's always a funny thing to me that like the new york times or the even the wall street journal you know if you lean right oh they're not good but i'll trust this funky website from you know from from a former soviet bloc country or something like it's so weird to me that they just this trust issue is huge now yeah, and, and it's really systemic, right? So, I mean, people have lost trust in government and the courts and politicians and science and medicine and, you know, it's and each other, right? So general interpersonal trust has gone down. Um, and, uh, you know, the only thing that sort of switches that sometimes is the partisanship. Right. So you trust the president if he's your president. You know, if he asks, how much can you trust the presidency? Well, if he's my president, I can trust him. But if he's the other president, I can't. Right. So everything just flips around. But, you know, and it, again, it's a really it's it 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 speaks to the fragility, again, of democratic governmental systems. I mean, you've got to have a certain level of trust to make it work. I mean, the system is kind of beautifully set up. I mean, I think the American systems, you know, with whatever flaws it might have, you know, it's beautifully set up in a lot of different ways, but it just, we realize that, you know, people aren't, don't approach it in good faith. The whole thing falls apart pretty fast. And that's what happened. You know, when you, when you don't think the other side is operating in good faith, that's just, you know, that's, that's what follows. Right. And that's when you'll, well, and that's another, some other research that I, I've seen about how, um, and, and uh, the, the researcher on this sort of took some heat for it because their um, data showed that, you know, it, this that this applied equally to the to the left and right. That if you thought the other person was going to do something anti-democratic, you would do you would be more likely to do something anti-democratic first. And this came out about the same between Democrats and Republicans. And they're like, no, that can't be true. It has to be only the Republicans that think that way, right? <laughs> no, that's that that you know that's I mean. 
that this idea of sort of that we misperceive the other side and that's kind of the active ingredient in a lot of stuff is you, you see that again and again that's a, a, a scientific finding that, that has been uh you know coming up again and again i think i saw you had Jan vocal on on the show you know the strengthening democracy challenge this that, that's what it I mean what used was a good intervention too which is if you ask people you know, how, you know how extreme is the other side on this issue and then people almost always over predict and there's a tendency again for Democrats to overpredict more than Republicans, and that's been a very consistent tendency since the early, you know, early studies that did this maybe even 20 years ago, kind of found this that kind of Republicans live in a democratic world in a sense and get have more friends, and, and Democrats sometimes are more separated. But again, you know, you, you overpredict, and if you correct that overprediction, things get better. So there's a real sense in which, yeah, we're, yeah, I like to call it, you know, political shadow boxing. I mean, we're fighting an enemy that's different than the one we really have and much more extreme and much more negative, right? And that's who we think we're fighting against. We're fighting against the most extreme version of, of the other side, but the, a lot of the other side isn't, isn't like that at all. And if we understand that, we start to act a little better and and things go start to go a little better. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, that seems like from what I've seen so far, that seems like one of the most sort of effective, uh, you know, um, things that change something right away is this, if you, if you can lower that, that, that misperception, that, that seems to make a big difference. Yeah. And it's the most old fashioned, I mean, it's the advice we would have told you, <laughs> to understand the other side. Once you guys get together and talk, sort of come to understand each other, then things go better. And it, so this is just, yeah, sort of a, a bottled version of that. Right. I mean, some of these like solutions seem almost trite, right? Like, you know, it's almost so obvious, but they're hard. They're still really hard to do. They're still really hard to scale up and to apply and to write. I mean, these, uh, it's still a real challenge. Yeah. So you've cited a couple of things, but I'm, I'm wondering if anything else of research since we spoke last sort of just really jumps out at you as something that would be, you know, kind of rel related to what we're talking about and, and kind of important for the audience to know about. Um, well, I'll just even start with one like uh that's related to this uh it was a nice study that i think it was kurt gray's group that you uh i think you had kurt on the show and he 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 talks about this idea of this basic morality bias that he shows that people just sort of assume the other side's bad or bad people you ask them how many people you know how many you ask a democrat how many republicans approve of child pornography you know they say oh you know 30 40 percent and like two percent right i mean so it's that same people to sort of attribute these negative things and then if you correct those he does these very simple manipulations where he just exposes them to one person who doesn't fit that mold of the other side so you you know if you're a democrat that believes you know these terrible things and then you see one republican that doesn't it makes you uh you know more positive towards them and again sort of starts to plant the seeds of, of connection um i mean the other thing that came out and i you know i think kurt's a really interesting researcher and i was like another thing that sort of related to that is this idea of experience i don't know if you talked about these studies that what you know when we when you try to persuade another researcher or excuse me another you know uh you know person of some political position right you we, we try to do it with facts so we say oh you know here's this facts this guns guns kill this many people that you know you, you give them all the the facts and that invariably doesn't work right it's sort of historically doesn't work but what does seem to work is this kind of sharing personal experience 
So if you kind of, you know, if you give them, and people find people very persuasive and very rational when they say, you know, I, you know, my my father was killed, you know, by, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a gun related crime. And so, you know, I, I really, you know, feel very strongly that, you know, you should ban these guns or maybe even that you should, uh, everybody should have a gun. It doesn't, but everybody goes, oh yeah, wow. So you've been through it. You've experienced it. You, and again, it, that's what seems to be the inactive ingredient of these interventions is, is this kind of shared experience about being harmed uh, in various ways. And that's that, you know, it's, it's that same idea that if we just talked to each other, that we sort of shared why we, you know, where our beliefs came from, that everything would just, you know, everything would go a little bit better. We'd sort of, we'd just be that much more tolerant. And so those are the studies I'm looking you know, at a lot of intervention studies these days, you know, to try and see what, you know, you know, what we might be able to do, what we might be able to scale up, you know, sort of what, what, we, what are the, the, the cool ideas out there about that? Yeah. And I definitely want to keep going on that direction too. But, and, and, and so I was wondering about what you're talking about there sound a little bit like, a, I, I don't know if you've seen sort of the street epistemology stuff or kind of sometimes it's called deep canvassing. Um, they, they kind of have been get working on those. I'm sorry. They kind of get to know the, yeah, I mean, they have like a whole process. They, it, I mean, it's one of these things that takes 20 minutes per person to sort of go through. So it has this challenge of scaling up, but, but yeah, I mean, it's this whole kind of idea that, yeah, you, you, you may not be able to move a needle all the way to sort of someone agree with you, but you might be able to move that needle a little bit by kind of going through that process and listening and, and kind of then, and, and echoing it back and some of those kind of things. They have a, a sort of a rhetorical scheme that, that they use. I was just curious if you had stumbled into any of that research. No, but um, yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds great. I mean, I, I, you know, agreement isn't the goal. Right, right. It's tolerant. That, oh, I say that all the time. Like people think, you know, everyone thinks I'm trying to bring everybody to some, you know, center position. Like I put some kind of centrist model on a pedestal. All we're really talking about is disagreeing better, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the strength of democracy. I always say that, you know, it's like the whole democracy is both a moral good, right? I mean, it's like gives empowers people with the freedom that we think people deserve, but it's also supposedly in theory, a, a practical good. It's like, okay, so rather than an authoritarian who only has his own ideas to choose from, well, I've got all these different people, constituencies, everybody's you know, kind of saying things, all these ideas. So I just picked the best one out of all those ideas. And, you know, we all you know, convince each other rationally that that's the right way to go. And then we do it, we implement all this great policy and it all breaks down. If you won't talk to the other person, if you won't ever see wisdom and what they say if you just reject it you know which is kind of what what people do right well, and, I think, and you lose all the benefits of democracy yeah and i think it also breaks down if you sort of refuse to lose once in a while if you refuse to accept that you're not always going to get your way right i mean that's another aspect of democracy is that one of the political scientists i had on talked about this as kind of this loser's burden idea that you know you win some you lose some it's not you're not happy about losing but you know, it's okay because it's democracy and you get another chance in a little while I can run again and I might win the next election, right? And that's been just like something that's sort of comes with running for election or or even have, taking a position or trying to push, push a proposition or whatever it is. You lose sometimes and then, okay, well, I'll get another chance. I'll do it again. But once you like make losing, you know, sort of existential that and you, you know, that that's where things kind of break down as well. 
Absolutely. But you were, so yeah, so you just talked about that you've been really looking at some of these interventions. And I know like Peter Coleman talks about, has identified like some 8,000 organizations working in what he calls kind of this bridge building space. And I'm trying to get as many of the 8,000 to talk to me on the show. We'll see how many I can get. But, uh, but, um, and so I'm curious, like, you know, when we talked before, you weren't particularly, oh, not, I wouldn't say you weren't optimistic, but you didn't see any sort of easy solution. And I, and we titled the episode Buckle Up because, you know, we're kind of buckling up for a fight. Uh, Has anything changed in that? Or have you seen any things? I just curious to hit your um, update on that. Yeah, I am. I am not optimistic. I mean, I'm not pessimistic. I just am completely uncertain. I'm, I'm fearful going forward. Um, just because, and again, I'm, I'm particularly fearful of sort of the, you know, the loss of democracy, um, and and in this particular election, I really. Well, uh, you know, my, my politics are generally liberal, right? But so, but in this particular election, I really don't want the Republicans to win, right? And so I think that's a problem. But it's not like if the Democrats win, everything's going to be hunky-dory, right? If whoever wins the other side is going to be angry and outraged, and they're going to lash out, and they're going to perceive it as unfair. You could just see it doesn't matter who... It, who wins? It's not winner take all. It's I mean, I think one of the important things to recognize about the American sort of cultural situation is I think the two sides are really, really evenly matched. You know, you see the numbers are very close, you know, to the extent that that Republicans have certain political advantages by the way that you know the, the government structured um you know electoral college and you know that, that sort of thing, right? Democrats have huge cultural advantage. I mean, if you watch the late night TV shows, they are relentlessly anti-Trump in a way. And those are sort of mainstream. They used to be mainstream American. Sorry, and I know everybody's you know watching different things now. Right. But I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing how mainstream, uh, you know, uh, or, or sort of uh, maybe, maybe not mainstream influential American culture is so liberal. Right. And then you've got this other power. So whoever loses is going to be engaged. It's going to be a struggle. So in the sense of being, I don't see this thing calming down anytime soon. You know, it's a big slugfest with everybody's aggrieved. Um, you know, you, you can see that the extremes are starting to sort of uh, you know, kind of win out in a lot of different ways. And so, yeah, it's going to be a bumpy, I buckle up. Uh, still. <laughs> we'll still keep the keep the belt on <laughs> a couple of years you know could could you know veer real bad it could you know just be bumpy but it's not going to be uh, you know, i don't think there's a kumbaya moment that i see in mm-hmm. the near future yeah well um so well i'll say that the the one of the one of the guests i had on david mccraney was sort of talking about maybe there could be that cascading effect that like if a few people go and then it kind of builds and builds and builds. So that that's, that's one maybe hope out there, maybe the spark of light <laughs> might happen. <laughs> but, and I do think that, yeah. and, and I think we mentioned this before, I do think there is a desire for it among, you know, people talk about this exhausted majority and some other things. I do think there's a, people are kind of getting a little tired of it. And I think we've also talked about how at the same time they sort of participate in it. Yeah, you know, line between politics and entertainment is blurred, you know, considerably. Uh, you know, it's fun. It's it's you know, Trump certainly made it interesting, right? He was an interesting 
you know, if you were writing a play, you want to you'd, you'd want a character like that in there, uh, you know. And so, and politics when it goes well is pretty boring. So, yeah, well, in some sense, you know, our life is kind of boring, right? Because it's not that bad. Like we really want to make it terrible, and, and so we sort of Freud's narcissism of small things kind of thing. We just want to find stuff to fight over. I think that's a really good analogy. And I would say that we're kind of, you know, Americans for the most part, right, are kind of fat and happy. And, you know, we've had a, we've been in a safe political environment, however problematic, you know, ours is. It's just, you know, dramatically better than many other places. And everybody's pretty comfortable generally. So, yeah, now you could maybe you, you want to get a little conflict. You want to get a little, you know, wrestling. Is, I guess, <laughs> what it seems like. Yeah. yeah, we want a little little pro wrestling in our lives, yeah. <laughs> well, Professor Ditto, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I thank you again for, for helping us out with this anniversary episode. I think, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled with it. Well, thank you, and good luck uh, going forward. Uh, you know, keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much. That is it for this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. For links to everything we talked about on this episode, go to outrageoverload.net. As we close out the year, I want to thank our partner, the Connors Institute, and director and friend of the show, Dr. Lawrence Eppard, who also hosts the Utterly Moderate podcast that you may want to check out. I also need to give a shout out to my co-director and all-around wizard, Austin Chen. Austin keeps our standards high, our topics relevant, and our narratives captivating. All right, that's a wrap on the first year of Outrage Overload. Buckle up, stay curious, and keep fighting the good fight. And of course, join us again to continue the journey.